0: This episode is brought to you by Bitdefender, team partner of Ferrari. Visit bitdefender.com to learn more about how Bitdefender supports Ferrari to stay ahead of cyber threats and how you can make your digital life safer. In 2023, Red Bull Racing are the team at the top. But long before they became the all-conquering titans that they are today, Red Bull made a habit of bringing talented young drivers into Formula One. Talent like Vitantonio Liuzzi.
1: Without Red Bull, I don't know if I would have been uh, in Formula 1, but possibly yes, because I was definitely winning everything that was in my career in in the early step, karting uh, Formula 1 or Formula 3000. I, uh, everything I was doing, I was doing it right. But then you never know, you know, the chance to be in Formula 1 is only for 20 people.
0: Liottsi certainly enjoyed a sparkling junior career. He even beat Michael Schumacher to become, in Tonio's words, the most famous go-kart champion in the world. But his Formula One career lacked the same fizz.
1: These are the things that change your life, change your career. Uh, when you end up in the podium, uh, you, you enter into a different uh, group of drivers. You know, I had a few chances, let's say four or five times a uh, chance of being on the podium. But for whatever reason, uh, the car always broke. Maybe the car always hated to see me on the podium. I don't <laughs> know what was the reason, but it was a shame because these are the results that can change your future and your career.
0: Hello and welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me Tom Clarkson. From 2005 to 2011, Vitantonio Liuzzi raced in 80 Grand Prix for the likes of Red Bull Toro Rosso and Force India. He scored 26 World Championship points, but despite a trophy-laden career in karting and in the junior categories, Liuzzi never stepped on the podium in Formula 1. Today, he swapped the racetrack for race control, often enforcing the rules as a driver steward for the FIA. Taking me back to his Red Bull days, Tonio discusses whether the team's party reputation was a distraction for him, the politics at Toro Rosso, and why the nature of his departure from the team in 2007 left a sour taste. Liuzzi also relives his famous victory over Michael Schumacher at the 2001 Karting World Championship Finals, and he tells me how that started a friendship between them. We talk about his memories of driving for Force India, missed podium opportunities, why he joined a backmarker team at the end of his career, which current Formula One driver reminds Tonio of himself, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Antonio, thank you for your time. It's great to have you on the show. Your relationship with Formula One has changed over the years. Your driver turned FIA steward these days. How is life, first of all, as a driver steward?
1: Totally different, I have to say. Uh, has been a huge change. I cannot uh, obviously say that I used to prefer driving because uh, I love adrenaline in my life. But I have to say that this step has been uh, a big change in my career. Uh, and being in the other side of the desk is quite uh, interesting because it shows uh, how many tools people used to have to judge us when we were driving and sometimes we used to feel that we were right in an overtaking in a crash or in some maneuver and now I can see from the other side why I was discussing uh, with the stewards in the past and why many times they could have been right because uh, they had uh, so many tools to analyze things uh, and I have to say is uh, I enjoy this position, and I enjoy to be be back uh, in the Formula 1 track in the park where I, where I grew up. And it's, uh, it's always a nice feeling because Formula 1 is always for me my, my life.
0: When you see an incident on track, can you tell immediately who's at fault?
1: really quickly I have to say the 90% of the idea I make it quickly thereafter obviously because as I said before we have many tools to analyze uh, uh, the accident with the cameras uh, with radio uh, communication between the drivers and the engineers uh, with the telemetry a lot of tools that uh, uh, are really important to see the, the motion or how, how the accident arrives and what the driver is thinking or what the driver is doing in the car. And after we analyze quickly all these details, we have uh, really professional people inside our room that makes uh, this happen really quickly. And that will uh, help us uh, to, to judge uh, in, in a short time. But sometimes, of course, even in a crash that at the beginning, I felt uh, sure about uh, the result. After with all the camera angle and the radio communication, it changed my mind. That's really interesting.
0: And and do the drivers, when they come into the steward's room, do they try and pull the wool over your eyes or do they not bother because they know you're a racer and, and you can read the situation right
1: ah, We We are drivers so we, we always used to find an excuse for what <laughs> happened so they all keep trying uh, but I have to say in a many in a fair way some they try to play uh, games or they try to play politics uh, when they explain uh, they try to be smart uh, or smarter <laughs> but uh, at the end of the day we recognize this pretty quickly because we have been in the same uh, spot of them. We only analyze we, we listen to what they say we put in, in account, in consideration uh, in uh, in the whole package uh, before we take a decision and then after we are four stewards so all together we share our information the driver advisor of steward obviously is that one that counts most to analyse the accident but uh, uh, then we decide all together the final consequence
0: Now Tonio, what about your own career? How do you look back on Formula 1? You did 80 races I lived through all of those races from the media centre and it seemed to me to be a case of right place wrong time. Is that how you look
1: back at it? Yeah, you took my words uh, from my <laughs> mouth. Uh, I, no, I was definitely one of the lucky drivers to reach Formula 1 because there are only 20 in the world and I felt really uh, lucky to reach the target. But uh, of course, as you said, in my career I had uh, a good chance because I've been uh, with uh, good teams but always at the right place in the wrong time because I was always, I called uh, the start-upper of everything because I was at Red Bull in the first year, at Toro Rosso in the first year for Cindy at the first year HRT at the second year so every time I was uh, like uh, one of the drivers that helps the development of the team helped the development and uh, as Every business, uh, when they, you start getting results, achieving some uh, points, uh, um, money involvement in the team gets bigger and bigger. You know, many times there are politics uh, uh, entering uh, the team because there are more interest uh, uh, inside the team. And I was always really weak in that. Uh, I was only basically a driver that wants to go 110% every single lap of, of uh, qualify, free practice and race. I was always myself and maybe this was uh, not helping me because I was always saying everything I felt and uh, didn't play in my side. That was a big shame because I think we had uh, really great performance every time, really great opportunities, but the politics, I think this didn't uh, support me.
0: Interesting to hear you say that because you had a very experienced manager in Peter Collins, formerly of Benetton and Lotus fame between the two of you you still struggled to negotiate the politics is that what you're saying
1: yes yes peter was an amazing person and there was the person uh, that uh, brought me to formula 1 and pushed me actually to move to single seater when i was a go-kart driver it was the man that made me switch in my mind to make uh, this uh, effort and this uh, try but as me he was a a really passionate person about motorsport. Uh, he, he was always uh, thinking mainly at the sportive side and less at the politics side or the economic side. So I think this was uh, not playing in our side because we were only focusing on results, speed, uh, going faster, helping the team uh, to grow up, development uh, and all these things regarding the team itself. But Formula One is such a huge business uh, that involves also other side. And uh, in the other side, we were pretty weak. When
0: you think of yourself as a driver, what do you think were your greatest strengths? Speed.
1: lots of that definitely uh, my speed in my career I I had teammates uh, like uh, Ricciardo Vettel uh, drivers that uh, they've been champions uh, won many races uh, and uh, many other drivers that were teammates of mine uh, but uh, I was always really fast uh, and uh, competing with them without any problem in terms of pure speed Uh, but at the end uh, my career took a different way and uh, it's a shame because I felt that I could have given a lot more to the sport and to myself but uh, I cannot say it didn't work because it was still quite a decent career but uh, could have been much better
0: Technically were you strong?
1: Technically I was really strong I was uh, really good in developing the car I was a uh, used many times from Red Bull when I was a Toro Rosso driver to do uh, the test for them in 2006 and uh, beginning of 7 so uh, I I used to develop I was working a lot in the wind tunnel with my engineer because I I, I love the aerodynamic side I love the technical side and I used to love to be part of a a development of a car Uh, something that not every driver many times likes Uh, I I realized that not everybody likes but for me the technical side and development Developing the car was part of uh, a complete driver and uh, I really enjoyed spending time especially in the wind tunnel because it was a really uh, uh, an amazing time uh, with, with Force India especially because I spent a lot of time with them uh, in, uh, in England and uh, I have to say it's something that, that I really love. When
0: you were a kid, were you big in the sciences? Did you study physics? And
1: not at all, nothing <laughs> at all. I cannot say that I was the the, the best at school, because I was not, but uh, I was always curious. I always uh, liked to push, to push myself to the limit. I used to love uh, airplanes in general, but uh, I never thought I would have end up being a Formula One driver because I was playing soccer as uh, all the Italians do in this, when they are kids. But not really. Uh, I just became super passionate about the technical development when I was a go-kart driver because when I was driving I used to love following my mechanics uh, understanding the changes in the cart, uh, understanding why something was happening when you change a rear axle uh, a chassis uh, tube dimension an angle uh, of the camber cast uh, the hackerman all these things that are Really technical things, but uh, I used to be curious to understand what was happening in the go-kart when I was driving and feeling myself while driving it.
0: Well, Tonio, you were a brilliant kart driver, and I want to uh, discuss next one world championship in particular, and that was 2001 Kirpen. Michael Schumacher did that race, and you beat him. What are your memories of
1: it? I think that was uh, the most important day of my career because it made me the most uh, famous uh, karting world champion in history. Uh, thank to Michael Schumacher that came to race with us uh, that uh, that weekend in his home race, uh, in, in, in his home track. And uh, thanks to him, uh, I won the championship, the world the title there. And I was famous all around the world because I was the guy who beat Schumacher in, in a karting world track uh, but it was an amazing day and especially was a big switch in my uh, in my mentality because uh, being beside a champion like Michael at, at the time that at the beginning I thought he was coming and stealing our uh, fame because we were fighting for the championship me and other colleague of karting and he came and nobody took care of us we were no we were part of his race in Kirpen but then after I realized that work beside uh, Formula One at the time I feel it was Two or three time world champion, switched my mind to understand how much professional uh, and the state of mind you need to, de- to develop yourself uh, as a Formula One driver. You know, you really see the passion and the focus that Michael had in his eyes uh, when he was driving, even only a go kart. And uh, that made a big switch in my head because I thought that if I wanted to become somebody, Similar to him, I had to to become a lot more focused, uh, a lot more, not not serious because I was already serious, but a lot more straight, working much harder. You know, it gives you an idea of. of how hard it is to get to become a Formula 1 driver. Did
0: you have much contact with him over that weekend?
1: Really little. He was surrounded by uh, hundreds of people and it was difficult to uh, to talk to him. Obviously, we sp- spoke a little bit on the podium and I have to say that we became a little bit friends there because after when we saw each other in another occasion and once when, when I read in Formula 1, uh, obviously... For me, he was a a hero, and he had a lot of respect for me uh, because of that event in uh, go-kart, because he used to love go-kart, and uh, I think he respected me a lot because he knows that the go-kart driver, you know, it's a a big benchmark uh, to see the level of uh, of a driver, and... uh, all of us we used to love go kart, but Michael especially used to go quite often go karting in Italy. And uh, we did a few events together or a race car, um, charity race car together. And it was always a difficult one to beat but uh, it was amazing because there was a lot of respect between us
0: what did that win in 2001 do for your career
1: of course it changed drastically uh, everything because it made everything so quick you know I was maybe the fastest driver to jump from a go-kart to a Formula 1 because I ended up winning this championship I think it was October uh, or November uh, uh, 2001 and in September or October 2002 I tested the Formula 1 Williams uh, in Valencia so this transition was really short and uh, obviously in that day in Kirpen there was uh, Jonathan Williams, the son of Sir Frank, that uh, we start having contact there uh, talking about the future. And As
0: a direct result of that win in Kirpen, the Williams was, test came around.
1: He was following me since uh, quite a while because he was a big passionate uh, about uh, go kart drivers and he, start, he was looking at uh, young talent coming. So he started... Uh, Uh, keeping an eye on me uh, during that uh, that year 2001 and that once I won the championship we start talking about a potential test in 2002.
0: Jonathan had just found Juan Pablo Montoya or actually just a few years before but and I see you and Montoya as quite similar drivers impetuous fast no nonsense I could see you being a Jonathan Williams kind of guy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 but uh, I also, am a huge fan of Juan Pablo because he was the kind of driver I like, you know, as you say, you know, he was, uh, uh, no politics, no bullshit, uh, just uh, flat out, close the visor and uh, give everything uh, it goes. Uh, so I was a kind of similar uh, I didn't have the same career as him but uh, the same result let's say in, uh, in career as him but always because of being at the right place of the right time I think uh, but uh, yeah I think Jonathan used to love that kind of uh, that style of driver similar a little bit to Dr. Marco because in my first test uh, in, uh, that he gave me in Pannonia ring with a Formula 3000 after I came from uh, Formula Renault I was physically an extreme test for me because how hard was the car but uh, he used to love my my passion my hunger my my need of speed Uh, i think is that what he really like in drivers
0: need for speed look can you tell us a little bit more about that first formula one test it's november 2002 nine months after you've won uh, the karting world championship you go to valencia Uh, your karting rival giorgio pantano is also being tested at that time did you feel ready for a formula one car
1: I think that the age when you are so young and you go against anything and you think you are uh, not the king, but you you want to go over your limits, you never think if you are ready or not. You just go. Uh, you just sit in the car close the visor and go and I have to say that physically I was definitely not ready because I remember at the end of the one and a half day of testing that I got I couldn't even eat because I was keeping my head uh, with the one hand and putting the <laughs> food in my mouth with the other because uh, my neck was destroyed uh, and Valencia was actually quite a slow track <laughs> exactly <Yeah. laughs> but the last corner that never ends yeah. uh, my, I think I did 74 laps uh, in one day definitely physically it was something that I was struggling. I think it was also uh, a result of my performance because I remember I was really fast pretty close to to Juan Pablo with the used tires. Then when he was putting a new tire, he gave me, uh, I'm not sure, I think uh, eight tenths or something like that and it was only in two corners because it was the super high speed corner, the turn one and uh, the penultimate corner on the right in Valencia because he could keep up with uh, with the neck, of of course because he was trained uh, enough and me I couldn't keep my neck so I was uh, slowing down in the corner and I was losing uh, time in, in that specific to car, uh, corner and that was only because of physical so definitely my physical side was not ready.
0: Tony when you're so fresh out of karting how do you explore
1: the limit of a Formula One car? You just try. You just try and you are shocked the first few laps when you jump in a, in a car. with. At the time it was nearly a thousand horsepower already because it was the BMW Williams. Uh, there was a winning uh, car and it was incredible. I remember the feeling I had when I went on throttle the first couple of laps. I was shocked. I said, wow. Uh, This is incredible and the adrenaline I had in myself was huge, but it's something that uh, it feeds me. You know, I I, I, I live of adrenaline and this was giving me uh, even a bigger boost to to try, to try. And uh, uh, it was an amazing feeling because it's something that after a few laps it becomes natural. I think in your uh, head... uh, even if you're going much, much faster, but your head automatically makes vision much slower. So it doesn't seem that different, but the approaching to the corner is just, okay, I have to do it. So you just try. <laughs> so lap by lap, you, you, you get closer to a limit that you think that never comes because Formula One seems, that it seems limitless for the performance that it has.
0: This episode is brought to you by Bitdefender, team partner of Ferrari. In cybersecurity and Formula One, every millisecond counts. Only the most advanced cars and dedicated teamwork win races on the track. And only the most advanced security technology and elite specialists have the power to prevent, defend, and stop cyber attacks. Technology makes all the difference in who has a clear advantage, where Bitdefender is renowned for driving leading-edge innovation in cybersecurity. Bitdefender helps safeguard the data of Ferrari. They supercharge the cybersecurity team's ability to swiftly identify and respond to any threat that arises. Bitdefender has earned the trust of Ferrari for its commitment to innovation and for being at the forefront of cybersecurity to manage continuous and evolving challenges. Join the millions of consumers and businesses that trust Bitdefender to protect their digital world. Visit Bitdefender.com to learn more about how Bitdefender supports Ferrari to stay ahead of cyber threats and how you can make your digital life safer. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile,
1: and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts.
0: Let's fast forward a year. You've just done your first season in Formula 3000 and you get another test, this time with Sauber alongside Felipe Massa. Do you feel that you explored the limits of the car better then because you had that much more
1: experience? Definitely. Uh, The the year after... uh uh, in 2003 when I drove the Sauber I was a f- definitely a much uh, stronger person I had uh, one year behind me of uh, Formula 3000 that was already much tougher physically compared to Formula 3 and my test in in uh, Jerez it was uh, was super it was a mega test and we went uh, really fast but unfortunately I uh, uh, Mr. Bernie uh, killed my my dream uh, uh, before the test. Actually, at 7:30 in the morning, before we jump in the car, basically he, he, speaking to Mr. Sauber, they they confirmed uh, Villeneuve that he had to drive that year. Uh, you remember that was the year where Villeneuve came back uh, after a few years. And before my test, uh, uh, Mr. Sauber told me that we were going to have the test, but uh, the seat was already gone. So they gave me, a do you say, a knife in my stomach before a few minutes before my test. But I enjoyed the test because it was still a great experience and I will thank Sauber for that. When
0: you get told on the morning of your test that you're no longer in the running for a race seat because Villeneuve's got it, does that take the pressure off? Does it make you angry? How did you feel?
1: Yeah, for sure you become really disappointed because everything you're dreaming of, you it falls apart, uh, you know, but it doesn't make things easier. Uh, maybe it makes in terms of pressure because uh, you drive uh, with more, not relaxed, but uh, with less pressure of making mistakes so you want to try more, you enjoy more the test. But uh, for sure, uh, the world collapsed on me the, the morning at 7.30 when I received that phone call. Uh, but as I say, it uh, was an amazing experience uh, and uh, was part of the learning. I got the experience, the, the chance uh, a few years after. It was a shame because I think that position, in that position, in the moment of Sauber, that after it changed into BMW, uh, I think it could have changed my career. But, you know, these are the sliding doors uh, of uh, Formula One career. Uh,
0: and it was a good car that Sauber the following year it was it? a
1: good car it was a definitely yeah. good car really good balance uh, obviously I remember there was quite a, a big difference in engine because the BMW the year before I tested with Williams it was maybe one of the strongest at the time uh, of the old Formula 1 uh, paddock uh, and I remember the aggressivity of the engine in Valencia in the Sauber maybe it was uh, uh, even one year after so I was more ready everything looked more smoother much easier to handle but uh, uh, once again the team was uh, really professional it was an amazing test it was just the shape Uh, for the phone call at 7.30.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, the big chance comes thanks to Red Bull. When did you first come on Dietrich Mateschitz's radar?
1: I know, I was always, uh, since the beginning of my single-seater career, I was always a part of the Red Bull family, so I will be always thankful forever to Didi, because he was uh, the person that made my dream re- uh, come true, so uh, I was always under the radar of Didi, and he had, uh, he, I used to be one of his favorite drivers, because uh, at the beginning we were only a few junior driver uh, in Red Bull, so it was me, Vettel, Frizaker, uh, we were like five or six, and and that was one of his uh, favorite so one after the delusion how do you say what happened in Sauber I think he thought uh, now that he was already thinking about uh, a project in Formula 1 buying a Formula 1 team he thought it was the right uh, time for me to step up in the project of uh, Red Bull being a Formula 1 team and uh, that's why he he gave me the opportunity after in 2005 uh, he wanted me to drive but obviously when he he started the Formula 1 team there was already David as an experience uh, uh, driver in the team, dragging uh, the technical side, the, all the environment and me and clean we had to the, share the seat, if you remember, in 2005 and it was a decision that uh, he took because he wanted to give me the possibility finally to drive uh, but then unfortunately it was not the right decision for both of us, for me and, Clien, and Christian that uh, we were both trying for uh, hard for our career but it was not really useful to have four races and then stepping out to give a chance to your colleague, so we decided to stop after the first few swaps i was going to say because four races on four races off
0: it's difficult to get into a rhythm with the engineers exactly. with the car exactly. can i ask you a little bit more about Didi matterships because i remember at the time you describing your relationship with him as him being paternal towards you like like a your racing father when you look back on it now do you still feel that way
1: Definitely, because uh, uh, we lost a special person, that's uh, no words to say uh, different, because uh, he, he was uh, really a person of heart. He really put a lot of uh, passion uh, in his brand. Uh, you know, Red Bull, uh, the brand Red Bull, not Red Bull Formula, the brand Red Bull is a huge family. And uh, especially with uh, the athletes, he uh, used to have uh, uh, an amazing uh, feeling. And every time we were together, was never like a business conversation or let's say a, uh, talking be- between people that are working in the same team or things like that. He was always uh, such a nice person Really friendly, really helpful, ready uh, for uh, help you in anything you need. Uh, and he uh, was really a person with a huge heart. And uh, I will be definitely thankful to him forever. And it's a big shame that uh, he's not here anymore.
0: Without him, would you have made it
1: into Formula One? Good question. Uh, You know, I had a lot of sliding doors, but I never thought of this one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I think I I was definitely one of the young guns coming up from a single-seater. So maybe I would have had the chance as well. But uh, he also supported me in single-seater category. So I don't know if uh, me and my manager, only ourselves, would have been good enough to find uh, other sponsor, uh, because motorsport is really expensive, so you need to have big support from sponsor. I didn't have uh, my family money to support my driving uh, when I was younger, so without Red Bull, I don't know if I would have been uh, in Formula 1, but uh, possibly yes, because I was definitely winning everything that uh, was in my career in in the early step, karting uh, Formula 1 or Formula 3, 3,000 I I did a lot, everything I was doing, I was doing it right, but then you never know, you know, the, the chance to be in Formula One is, is only for 20 people.
0: I mean, as you say, sliding doors, but when Villeneuve got moved sideways from Sauber. Had you not been a Red Bull guy, I wonder whether that might have been an opportunity. But
1: yeah, but you you never know at the end because even when uh, before I signed my contract with uh, no, actually it was the week after I signed with Red Bull, then I was speaking to Flavio Briatore. Obviously, that he was helping a lot the Italians. He helped, truly, he helped physical So we were having uh, contact for me as well. But I already signed with uh, with Red Bull. So uh, I'm in these things. I'm really strict. So once I signed, I committed uh, with Red Bull, and uh, there was no. Possibility Position to talk, but uh, it's part of the business.
0: Final one on Matshits. Did you have his mobile number? Could you ring him at any time? At any time. Isn't that a crazy thing? The big boss of Red Bull, one of the biggest companies in the world, and you as a young twenty-something could just phone him
1: up. Yeah, I get goosebumps when I think of it, uh, but uh, that's the way it was. That's what, that's what I mean with a person of heart. You know, he has many thousands of athletes around the world, uh, but uh, he's there for his brand, for his people, the people he supports. He's there for them. And uh, when I used to be in Salzburg, it uh, was, was, was really great because uh, he was always there for you. And that's, uh, for me, something uh, unpayable uh, in any kind of uh, companies.
0: So, that 2005 season, we have touched on it, but you had David Coulthard as as the lead driver, you and Christian Klein sharing that second car for at least the first half of the year. How did you and Christian rub along, first of all? Did you share data, or were you hyper-competitive with each other, wanting to outdo the other one?
1: No, no, we were actually, we were uh, sharing everything, because there was the mentality of the team, that we were sharing all together the data analysis, so we were pushing all three uh, me, David, and Christian uh, to to give more to the team, uh, to more information, more data, pushing our each uh, ourselves to the limit. Uh, so there was for sure nothing uh, hidden uh, between uh, between us. And I have to say that at the beginning with Christian, although we were uh, uh, we knew already before because we were Red Bull athletes uh, uh, outside Formula One, so we used to see us in Fuschl in training camp and so on, and we were quite friends. Uh, after this experience in Formula One, we became. Really really good friends because obviously when we closed the visor each of us was driving for our own career because we were uh, uh, going under 110 to achieve our goal to get the seat but then after uh, when we were in the garage with the engineer uh, out of the truck uh, we became a really good friend and we were helping together to work for the same uh, target it might sound weird but he became uh, one of my best friends uh, in life so it's a uh, uh, Christian is a fantastic person for me.
0: You talk about the vibe in the team being very open and honest drivers, everybody pushing in the same direction. Off track, I very much remember Red Bull being the party team back then. As a young 20-something Was that a distraction?
1: I think I was handling uh, pretty well. But of course, uh, because I was uh, going back to the sliding doors, You know, I I was in a period of time uh, where Red Bull was more focused in marketing because it was the way they entered in Formula 1 because they were an amazing brand. And I'm working mainly with marketing. And there were so many parties during the year. And uh, obviously, as a Red Bull athlete, they they invited me and I was going there. But uh, I think I was managing quite well because in the track... I was one person in the events. I was a different one, and uh, I was, I think, one of the best uh, characters for uh, Red Bull. Uh, I really linked with the brand. I used to love their mentality. I because I, I live of adrenaline, similar thing to to Red Bull because of all the kind of crazy sports that they that they do and that they push. Uh, so at the beginning it was difficult because when you're so young, obviously you see. Uh, parties and uh, everything around, uh, it can distract you but uh, when I was uh, switching back in, into the race mode, track mode or let's say driver mode, uh, I was a different person, you know, still pretty different from other drivers in terms of look because this was also one of my characteristics but only because I want to be myself
0: Tonio, you keep talking about being an adrenaline junkie. And because of all the sports that Red Bull are involved in, away from motor racing, I'm thinking skiing and etc. Did you do all that as well?
1: Everything. (laughs) 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 That's right. The Red Bull uh, make me feel like a kid in the chocolate uh, factory, you know, because every time they were talking, looking at me, I said, would you like to do? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, even without listing what it was so i what was I did the everything. coolest thing you did i mean they made me drive a MotoGP, gp and, oh, wow. uh, and uh and i can confess now that the uh, that the only motorbike i drove before the time was a big scooter uh, but then when they told me you want to drive a MotoGP, gp and i said yeah yeah, of course of course of course then after when it was uh, like two months before the the this test I started saying to the marketing guys, I say, guys, but maybe it's better we organize a, a test with a bike with the gears, because I never drove, I only have a scooter. <laughs> <laughs> so they told me, Really? I say, yeah, so they organized a half a day in Silverstone with a Suzuki 600 bike. And that was my only experience before Moto, a MotoGP test. That actually went also quite well because I was only 11 seconds of the pace from the pole position. uh, Was it at Silverstone? It was no. The the test was in Valencia, the day after the last race of MotoGP, with a Suzuki of John Hopkins, because John drove my Toro Rosso, and I drove the the Suzuki uh, MotoGP, and was uh, an amazing thing. And even uh, parachuting, I drove. I drove as well the airplane, the acrobatic airplane. And uh, these are some things that I will always remember in my life. I was also trying to organize a, a jump without a parachute, uh, like Mr. Pastrana, my my friend in, yes, from the US. Because I, that's what I mean, uh, living of adrenaline, you know. Oh, uh, my goodness. And that's why I was Not matching while really you well. were an active driver. Actually, of course. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did parachute uh, oh, on Thursday of the Formula One race of Spa. I did uh, uh, skydiving, sorry, no parachute, skydiving. Oh my goodness.
0: The perfect Red Bull driver. Uh,
1: definitely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Look, your teammate in 05, David Coulthard, let's talk about him. How easy was David to work with and what was the biggest thing you learned from him?
1: The biggest thing I learned from him was definitely the commitment of, uh, with the team because he's a, a really professional driver. I think he's the perfect image of a driver. Is really uh, strict, really methodical uh, in uh, the way he works with the team, and I have to say that I also not learn because I, unfortunately I was never so good. But uh, he knows how to talk to to people, you know. And, and saying that he's really political, maybe might sounds uh, uh, weird, but uh, he knows how to talk with media. He talks how to know with uh, he knows how to talk with with the team principals, you know. He knows uh, how to put himself always in a strong position, let's say. Uh, at uh, your
0: expense? Uh,
1: for, for himself, you know, let's say, to, for the best of him, let's say, uh, not thinking uh, who is the competitor, let's say. For sure he was really good, you know. Some drivers are in, are really good in talking, uh, some uh, they're not talking at all, they just drive, you know, and uh, he's really good uh, in the marketing political aspect as well and it's something I always wanted to learn from him. But uh, I never uh, reached this goal. But
0: he had ten years' experience in Formula One, and he was just using that.
1: But I think was not an experience uh, coming from driving is 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 the way you are. You, you know, you cannot ask this to Kimi, because uh, you know that Kimi is the way he is. Uh, oh, I made an example of Kimi because he's the. Uh, I just one the limit maybe of speaking a little uh, but you have drivers you know like Sebastian Vettel uh, David Mark Weber as well they, they really know how to to uh, to play with the mind you know because uh, they're really good in this and I say it's a, it's a quality I'm not uh, talking bad
0: so it seems to me that knowing what you know now age 43 if you went back and had your formula 1 career again that aspect Is maybe the one thing you might change? Definitely, knowing what you know now, all the experience you have, the way you deal with the FIA, of course, as a steward, but
1: also the way you talk to the drivers. For sure, definitely, it's something that uh, is part of uh, of a champion as well. Uh, It's part of uh, a driver career as well you need to know how to handle yourself with people and sometimes it's hard to accept but you cannot say everything you think (laughs) so you have to uh, filter sometimes uh, what what you're thinking and this was a problem that i I never had filter in my time
0: (laughs) (laughs) end of 05 the red bull racing dream ends but you switched to the baby team, Toro Rosso, which has just been bought. Uh, well, Minardi's just been bought and, and renamed Toro Rosso. How exciting was that project for you?
1: I felt really great once uh, Didi, uh, Mr. Matisic uh, he said this to me, because obviously after what happened between me and Christian in uh, 2005, he came to me and he said, Tony, don't worry, next year we, go, we are thinking to buy a Minardi team, we want to make a full Italian team um, based in Italy, with you as a main driver, the Italian name, so a project around you. So I felt really uh, privileged uh, and was an amazing uh, thing for me. Obviously, I felt, OK, finally, I realized my dream to drive the full season uh, with a Formula One team and to, to be part of a big project that uh, he will grow up. As I said, I felt privileged and was an amazing feeling. And I have to say that I couldn't choose any better team to start with uh, the full season because uh, Minardi, once he switched to Toro Rosso, Uh, It kept growing, improved a lot the facility, the number of people, and the people in Italy, they were really amazing. The group of people coming from Minardi was a really an amazing group of uh, hard workers and passionate about motorsport and Formula One. And I still have a lot of friends of them that I see them on track uh, still now with Alfa Tauri. And it's amazing to see uh, how much passion they put into the sport how good was that car that first toro rosso of course it was the first year you cannot expect too much uh, we also had uh, a v10 with less power because at the beginning there was a, i think it was a late move let uh, let bought over from uh, red bull so there was something we couldn't um, organize a v8 engine like all the others so we drove with a v10 with less power less revs basically with a restriction on the, the air scoop and, uh, was that
0: engine really talky though at places like Monaco?
1: It had a lot more bottom because was there a lot less delay when you were going on throttle uh, compared uh, to the V eight? Was a lot stronger in the low rev, but after it obviously it was the power was weak because uh, there was a restrictor on the uh, on the air scoop. Uh, the revs were I think four 000, five thousand less than uh, should be. It was overall weaker than what all the other teams were using but it was was an interesting first year, it was a good experience uh, for the team for for me and uh, we were preparing pretty good for the second year for the 2006 and we also had some good races, it was a shame uh, we lost uh, a podium in uh, Montreal Uh, we we had a few occasions where we we could have finished uh, pretty good in the points we scored a few points uh, in a couple of races but uh, we could have achieved a lot more. You
0: were always good at Montreal. Montreal, yes, was one of <laughs> my favorite track. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I mean, as you say, missed opportunity there. I remember you overtaking Michael Schumacher on the last lap.
1: Yeah, but that was a, a longer story because I, I qualified P5 yeah. and then what Massa crashed into me at the start. So I went into the pit uh, at the first that was 2010, though, wasn't it? That was 2010, yes. Yeah. I was super fast and I had the speed to feel, to end up on the podium. But uh, the first corner, uh, Massa did a bit of a wild move. So we crashed uh, and uh, I lost the front wing. I went to the pit and basically I was last at the first lap and I ended up, uh, I think, P9, passing Michael at the last lap. Yeah, it was, amazing race. was an amazing race. Uh, was
0: it a case of take the downforce off and the car feels a little bit more alive and your feel for a car? Is that what came through there?
1: Actually, in that year, was uh, one of my worst years in terms of uh, problems because uh, I was a nightmare. It was the year of the F-duct, if you remember. Your elbow the out, your knee elbow out. out. Well, <laughs> I remember what uh, there was, you were... Stalling, stalling, the, stalling rear rear the rear wing. Yeah. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, it was a really complex system because basically all the team copied from McLaren that was the first one to put it uh, in Bahrain. Uh, Lewis and I think Nico was the team mayor. I remember, don't remember was the second driver. Jensen maybe. And basically all the other team had to copy. And uh, for Cindy, I did uh, his project really quickly uh, but it was a really complex system. And for whatever reason, in my car, it was never working. I think work two race out of 15 where we used and in Montreal because of the low downforce like Monza was removed that's why we were back in business and we were so fast and we were P5 because in Montreal and Monza you don't use the, the F-duct because there was no way even if you stole the, the rear wing it's like <laughs> it's the same we were back in business and we were super fast but in the rest of the year it was a nightmare because it was me and Sutil my teammate and in my car I was never working for whatever reason I don't think the team did it on purpose because they were amazing with me and for C India was pushing for uh, for the result but I was always really unlucky and many times I was like 10 12 k lower on the straight compared to my teammate uh, and it uh, was only the way it was uh, I we always fought to understand what was the problem uh, but there was always a, a leak in the system of my car
0: just to fill in the gaps for people listening if you're not familiar so Tonio leaves Toro Rosso at the end of 2007. You become test driver for Force India in 08. And then in 09, you've already mentioned a podium gone missing in 2006. When Giancarlo Fisichella goes to Ferrari for the last five races of 2009, of course, you get the step up to race for Force India. First race, your home race at Monza. And that I'm going to put it to you, Tonio, was another podium gone begging.
1: An- another one. Eh? <laughs> Unfortunately, another one. It seems that every every time I was close to the podium, there was something dark uh, in, it was in the destiny. Box, I think <laughs> that day, wasn't
0: it? But, but you again, really quick. First yes, race for the first team.
1: First race back in the car in Monza in my home race and was amazing because uh, free practice on Friday, you could straightly see that I was getting back in the system and in the rhythm pretty quickly. Then uh, Saturday, we end up in quite and straight away I was fast and then at the time we used to qualify with the fuel we had to uh, start the race with and basically I remember I end up in Q3 I was really pumped up because the car was perfect I was feeling good and I wanted to go for the pole seems like a dream but I was really feeling good and the car was really amazing and then after I, in the radio before the Q3 starts Vijay Maglia coming to me and said Tonio I believe in you you should go with the uh, full tank for one-stop strategy. I go there, no, please, VJ. no, let me go for the two-stop, at least we can fight for the pole. No, Tonio, we believe in you, you have to go for the one-stop. We put Adrian on the two-stop and you go for a single stop. And I you know maybe sometimes I, I'm uh, too soft but uh, I felt always really thankful for uh, you know the position that they always give me you know and I said okay VJ, if you want to go for the single stop and then I, I still made an amazing qualify because I did P7 uh, with a full tank go- going for the single stop and in the race as well we start the race we start catching up and basically I was like think 17 laps to the end after my P-stop so I, I was going until the end of the race I was P3 if I'm not wrong my consistency See my speed, it was uh, for P2 or P3 at the end, but then a, a gearbox issue stopped me 15 or 16 laps to the end, and it was really another uh, dark day, even though everything was perfect until this last, the last 15 laps. But uh, then, after the, ge- the gearbox gave up and was really. Uh, you know, these are the things that change your life change your career uh, when you when you end up in the podium uh, you, you enter into a different uh, group of drivers you know I had a few chances let's say four or five times uh, chance of being on the podium but for whatever reason uh, the car always broke maybe the car always hated to see me on the podium I don't <laughs> know what was the reason but it was a shame because these are the results that can change your future and your career I came from a low income family that was
0: Let's talk about another great race. And we're going to wind the clock back a couple of years. China, 2007. By this time, you've got Sebastian Vettel as your teammate. A young Seb has come in to replace Scott Speed halfway through that year. You out-qualify Vettel in China and you finish sixth.
1: Yeah, uh, the way you said it looks nice because it was a great race Uh, but it was a really unfortunate race because I had an amazing qualifier. I did P11 because both, both of us, me and Sebastian, we were on a similar strategy. Basically, we had the same fuel in qualifying and I think he had a problem. If he finished P18 or P19. So at the end, when we decided for the race, I said, okay, I have to go for a two-stop strategy because obviously I need to keep up the pace with the others for the full length of the race. And he went on a single-stop strategy. And basically, it was an amazing race. I had a really good pace, but then obviously, I had to do three stops because it started raining or, or I don't remember there was a change between rain to dry or dry to rain basically in the middle of the race so I, had, I ended up doing three stop, and Sebastian did one stop uh, in total uh, it was an amazing result for, uh, um, for Toro Rosso because we finished P4, Sebastian and P6 me and I, I made a mega race but at the end, obviously, all the impact was on Sebastian that he finished before. So I was hidden, hidden as well by by that but uh, i mean in myself uh, as you you know me i I always feel really confident and secure it's just a shame because you know my career could uh, could have but it was
0: that was a race where it was so easy to get it wrong just look at what happened to lewis hamilton you know he ended up in the gravel trap in the pit lane and it was actually that race i think you could argue strongly that decided the world championship that year but it was a great race by you how did you rub along with sebastian what are your memories of being his teammate?
1: Pretty good. Sebastian, he was a pretty introvert when he came to Formula One. He was really, really, uh, really young. And we were totally different uh, persons, uh, let's say, uh, different kind of character or different kind of attitude. And I was young and wild. But Sebastian, he was uh, more uh, quiet, say, compared to me, that he had a more straight way of, uh, of uh, seeing the things. Uh, even though it was with uh, the adrenalinic brand of Red Bull, uh, you know, we were a totally different approach uh, with the team, uh, with the fans, with the uh, with the brand, let's say. And uh, I always. Uh, thought that Sebastian was amazing in creating a group. Uh, Sebastian I think he had a a lot of similarity with Michael Schumacher in terms of this method of working uh, on track. And he was a really great person to bring the people towards him, to convince them uh, about the right things to do. And he was uh, a good, uh, he was dragging the team really strongly. And this I think was one of his uh, quality and characteristics that I respect a lot. Was he immediately fast? He was okay fast. He was uh, not crazy fast at the beginning, especially in the year where we went to mate. I was never struggling in terms of pace. Uh, Actually, it was uh, quite often... uh, I never had problem of speed, let's say. Uh, This was always my my great quality, but uh, he was uh, definitely really good in being at the right place at the right time in the strategy entire choice, uh, you know. I think he is born under the right star because he always had also uh, sometimes the luck going towards him, but uh, you create your own luck and in this he was always really good.
0: Given that you were able to match him for speed, how disappointed were you? that you got shown the door at the end of the year?
1: Super disappointed, ultra disappointed because uh, uh, was a decision taken by Berger that uh, he wanted me out of the team because at the time he was part owner with uh, Mr Matisic uh, of Toro Rosso. Why
0: did Gerhard Berger want you out? It doesn't seem to make sense on paper at least.
1: Because he was pushing uh, for Bourdais at the time he had inter- whatever interest with uh, Sebastian Bourdais when I received, the, the, let's say, the the, the paper that I was not going anymore to be a Toro Rosso driver, I was super surprised and shocked because I had a really good year and a really good performance. So I didn't expect it at all. So uh, I was really pissed off about that. But uh, it was pretty clear that it was for other interests that were in the team uh, due to get the uh, Ideas so or project uh, was just a shame, but at the end, how can you say we are employees? So <laughs> they decide what they do with their team.
0: Were you expecting Diddy Matashits to fight your corner a bit more than he did?
1: I wanted to, but I understood the way why he did not. Because basically, he was the guy that put fatal uh, instead of speed. Of Scott, so he decided for let's say 50% of the team during the year. He decided this swap of a driver uh, together with Dr. Marco. Uh, so he left the other 50% uh, to Ger, because he was part owner with him, and uh, that's why my my life ended with. Uh, with Toro Rosso even though Dr Marco offered me a seat, uh, a test driver seat in Red Bull for 2008 but the offer of uh, Force India at the time was uh, pretty good uh, because it was a four year contract and uh, I was really pissed off uh, with the, this situation with Gerard so I didn't feel comfortable to stay uh, uh, to stay in that situation so mm. Now it's past, of course, you know, I, I, I always, as I said, they always be forever thankful to uh, Dr. Marco, Matisic uh, uh, for the support and everything. Uh, but definitely, you know, my, my block in my, in my life uh, continuing with the Red Bull was definitely Gerard.
0: You mentioned the replacing of Scott with Sebastian Vettel. And it all came to an end between speed and, and Red Bull at the Nürburgring, that wet race. Can you confirm something for me? There was talk at the time of a big bust-up between Franz Tost and Scott immediately after that race. I've asked both of them, and they're both a little bit coy about it. Did you see what happened?
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. uh, I saw it. Proper shouting match. Big time, yeah, big time, but uh, in the pit lane (laughs) and and entering the garage, but... uh, It was a big shame because, you know, Scott uh, uh, is a big friend and I respect him because he was super fast. You know, sometimes people, uh, when they speak about Scott, they say, yeah, but, you know, he was not fast. It's not true. Scott was super fast, Uh, was maybe a bit inconsistent. But he was a cowboy, you know. It was uh, <laughs> the way it was. Uh, but uh, uh, he had really great skill. Uh, but after there was obviously the pressure of Vettel that he was coming super uh, with a big hype from the smaller category, and uh, at the first few mistakes. That uh, and especially after such a fight in Nurburgring between uh, Franz and uh, Scott was, uh, let's say, an easy open door for uh, for the change to be happen.
0: So your final team is HRT, 2011. It wasn't a competitive situation. Um, the team was run by your former F3 boss, Colin Collis. But why did you do it? What's the attraction for a guy like you who's super fast
1: to go and just be at the back? Because after another uh, shock uh, taken from uh, Forsyndia, basically my seat was Taken from uh, Paul Di Resta because I had another year contract and basically uh, uh, they hug me at the end of the year uh, Christmas party and they receive uh, basically a letter fourth uh, of January that I was not going to be the the driver for two thousand eleven uh, I I was shocked because I couldn't believe what happened and was. Budget situation, because obviously Paul was bringing uh, Mercedes uh, gearbox and a lot of other things that I can understand was uh, just the way it happened. that why I didn't really like. So, I, uh, but uh, this is part of the business once again. So at the end of the day, I ended up in January without seat. The season was going to start uh, soon, and uh, I didn't didn't know what to do. There were no at- other seats available. And there were not a space even as a test driver with the big teams. So, uh, Mr. Collis was also always one person that believed in me because he brought me to Force India as well. And I will be always one of the persons that I will be thankful to. And uh, he offered me this chance, and for me, it was like a transition year where I could try to negotiate other position for the future. So, keeping in the racing loop because obviously when you stop for too long then after uh, it can be uh, there are there were not so many tests anymore you know you play a lot of time in the simulator you work a lot of time in the simulator but it's a bit different at the time maybe now is not anymore now is pretty similar to reality but at the time it was still a bit different to be away from racing so i decided to take this chance the people at the, the mr carabante family they were really nice people and uh, it was a good year i cannot say that i enjoyed driving. The car was really tough. It was a really tough season because the car was really difficult to drive. But uh, I think we did uh, big efforts during the season, a big step forward. I felt part of a a good environment environment where there were Possibility to improve, not to expect to become world champion, but possibility to improve. And in the meantime, I was negotiating uh, with, uh, at the time it was Reno, it was other team that we were talking with, but it didn't work. So uh, once then, after Mr. Carabante went out, there were other political changes inside the team. I gave up because it was too confusing, the situation, and I decided to stop and try other roads.
0: Halfway through that 2011 year, Daniel Ricardo came in, how quick was he from the outset?
1: Uh, Daniel was uh, definitely uh, quite good from the beginning. He struggled the first race in Silverstone, but uh, it was a rainy situation. It was uh, pretty difficult for him. Uh, I think it was his debut at uh, Silverstone. But then after, the in the next coming races, uh, he, he, had, uh, he had a good pace. He was catching back and he was uh, giving good performance. So you can see that... He had the speed. And once more, I felt uh, like being the benchmark for Dr. Marco, for the drivers. Because he said, you know, I put Daniel in uh, HRT because with Tonio, we see the level uh, of, of Daniel. And uh, it make me feel still pretty, you know, uh, not privileged, but uh, that you count, uh, let's say, you know, the people count on you. They know that you're fast. So uh, at the end, it was Going pretty well. He grew up during this uh, six race or seven race he made. After that, we all know what uh, Daniel did, so he deserved uh, all the results he made.
0: I did want to ask you before you go, who on the current grid
1: most reminds you of yourself? (laughs) You know, it's difficult to say... uh... Maybe they they might think that I I believe too highly of myself. But for me, you know, Max, he has a lot of characteristics, but obviously he's a super champion. I'm not trying to compare myself with with Max, but uh, me, I was pretty similar because I used to try to bring the car over the limit every time and sometimes even too much uh, because I was putting myself obviously a lot over the limit many, many times. Sometimes uh, I, I spun, sometimes uh, I made crash uh, at the beginning, the first few years of my career, especially with Red Bull and Toro Rosso. But uh, this developed my, my speed potential and I think is a little bit what Max did at the beginning. Uh, and now in, he's nailing everything because he also put uh, the head together and now he's not making any more mistakes and he's super fast anywhere and everywhere he goes.
0: You know what, it's funny you should mention Max because, of course, In that championship winning F3000 season that you did in 2004, you won, what was it? all but three races.
1: Yeah. You kind of
0: had your own max moment back then.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) pretty similar. (laughs) We had nine pole position out of ten qualify and seven races out of ten.
0: What was it like to ride that crest of a wave when you sort of, you went into every race I assume, thinking right, pole and win, that's the only objective.
1: Yeah, once you start uh, having that loop at the beginning of the season, then you fight against yourself to get better and better because obviously you realise you have the team working super well at the time it was Harden team there was an amazing team a super car and uh, it was a super package together with me because I was one of the young guns at the time uh, plus the car was perfect they were nailing it the pit stop uh, the strategy uh, the setups and there was a massive understanding between me and my engineer when we were talking on the radio within uh, seconds we were understanding which way to go with the setup this is also a really important uh, uh, thing for a driver to trust 100 your engineer and to understand each other really quickly so that was an amazing year so i understand why max is always pushing himself to the limit even now it was amazing you know and uh, yeah you can say we can say that i felt a little bit like him at the time <laughs> but you never think at that you always just you just want the maximum memory next Next race exactly
0: and what does the future hold I hope we're going to see you uh, as a driver steward with the FIA at lots more Formula One races because you're excellent at it but away from racing I mean I'm talking to a restaurateur, I'll tell you. What have you got? <laughs> five restaurants now?
1: Yes, yes. Together with my wife, obviously, we, we started a separate business as well in the F&B, uh, food and beverage. And uh, now we, we have uh, five restaurants in Italy and the uh, family is growing in terms of restaurant. I have a daughter, but uh, one <laughs> one is enough. <laughs> where are the restaurants? Yeah, four in Milan and one in Pescara, the city where I grew up. Uh, and now we are working on different projects around the world, but uh, around slowly, the world. slowly, slowly, slowly they are
0: expanding outside of Italy. We are
1: working on that because we
0: have a few offers for that. But, Tonya, for when people are next in Italy, what's the name of the restaurant they might want to come and
1: eat? Ah, of course. In uh, in, uh, Milan, uh, it's called Penelope Casa, or the dome that is on the main cathedral square in the centre of Milan. So these two are the brands. Then there are uh, two uh, brands in Milan. Well,
0: look, very good luck with that. Thanks. Look, And many congratulations on what was... It was a great career. It didn't get you the wins that you deserved in Formula 1 but you left your mark on the sport that will last forever
1: I have to say that I feel this when I come back to the track I feel a lot of uh, love uh, in a way, with all uh, my friends and the people where I grew up with, and the respect I used to have from them uh, in the past and still now, so I I enjoy being in the track, enjoying being a uh, steward because I think it's good for the sport to have people like us involved in this, this kind of decision. I hope uh, that uh, my position or in the future I will stay more and more involved in Formula One because I feel it's always my life. I don't know if I will uh, race again uh, in some category for because uh, I always have the adrenaline and the need for speed in myself need for win so at the moment this couple of years I'm not racing that much and I suffer, I'm i suffering but we'll, <laughs> we'll uh, but are you still parachuting and skiing and of course motivating? of course you still of course, of course, of course,
0: right? of course. Yeah. Tony, thanks so much thank you guys Clearly, Tonio is a man loving life, restaurateur, raconteur, biker, skier, pilot. What an array of interests he has. Keep it going, Tonio. Now, I really love that chat because I learned so much more about him and the ins and outs of his Formula One career. Tonio's relationships with Didi Matajits and Michael Schumacher and why he was dropped from Toro Rosso. Time has clearly given Tonio some perspective on Formula One. He now knows how to navigate the paddock and it all combines to make him an excellent driver steward for the FIA. Tonio, many thanks for your time and I'll see you at a race again soon. Well, what did you make of what he had to say? Do you think Tonio deserved better in Formula One? Let me know your thoughts through all the usual means. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about George Russell after last week's show. Wasn't George great? So open and honest about his crash in Singapore. And I loved hearing about his new passion for free diving. We got loads of feedback. And here are some of your messages. Let's start with this from Catherine. This Singapore Grand Prix was my first F1 attendance, and it amazes me how quickly George was able to move on from that hugely disappointing moment. He has excellent communication skills, and this podcast was, as always, a joy to listen to. Well, Catherine, thank you very much for that message. Thanks for getting in touch. And I do agree. George has excellent communication skills. I always enjoy chatting to him. And what about this from Zelda? I still believe Russell has the potential to become a champion-level driver. But like Leclerc, he just needs to iron out the mistakes. Verstappen became a champion-level driver when he managed that. Well, you're right, Zelda. If he does manage to do that, he will be a championship challenger. And I believe George is good enough to iron out those mistakes. And finally, here's 7BD273, very straightforward name. Such a great listener as always. George is not only one of the fastest, but one of the most intelligent and driven racers on the grid. It's been fantastic to watch his journey and I'm sure he has big things ahead of him. All the best. Well, all the best to you too, 7BD. Thank you for the message. That is a lovely note about George. Now we're going to leave it there for messages this week. Thank you to everyone who got in touch and thank you for listening as well. And please remember to send in your thoughts about Vit'Antonio Liuzzi in time for next week's show. And if you want to hear more insight into Red Bull's remarkable Formula One journey, then do check out my recent chats with Red Bull junior drivers, Christian Klein and Scott Speed and the team's legendary designer, Adrian Newey. You can easily find those by scrolling through the F1 Beyond the Grid feed. Also, F1 Nation's review of a dramatic Qatar Grand Prix weekend is available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.